0: Our first guest wrote a column in the Toronto Sun a few days ago that I read, and it was entitled, Deny Health Care to the Unvaccinated? Don't go there. A core concept of medical ethics in Canada is everyone will be treated, regardless of who they are or what they did or didn't do to end up in hospital. The piece was written by Alex Vesna. Mr. Vesna is the CEO of Prepared Canada Corporation. Alex is on the line from Mississauga, Ontario. Mr. Vesna, Alex, good morning, sir, and welcome to the
1: program. Good morning. Thanks for having
0: me. It's great to have you with us, Alex. Would you take a moment, please, before we talk about your very timely column and tell us a little bit about Prepared Canada Corp., which on its website says, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. It's all right there, friends, at prepared.ca. Tell us more, Alex, please.
1: Actually, I wasn't expecting us to go here. Uh, Okay. Um, Wow. Prepared Canada is uh, really about reducing risk fundamentally. Um, I founded the company about 10 years ago uh, when I saw there was not a lot of risk reduction really being done in the private sector in Canada, especially for small and medium businesses. And I saw that there was huge risk for large events like pandemics, like power power, power outages, et cetera, where the banks were ready, but small and medium business basically just, just weren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and arguably, they're still not. So uh, what, what I've tried to do and what the team has tried to do is create products and services that make business continuity and other risk reduction services like it accessible to businesses that normally can't afford it.
0: Uh Uh Ah, okay. Because, again, I'm quoting from your website. With so much misinformation and panic during this crisis, we're concerned if making reasonable, informed, strategic decisions is possible for most businesses without outside assistance. And, of course, we're talking about small businesses, particularly, Alex, Alex, responding to COVID-19, many of whom have just essentially evaporated,
1: haven't they? Right, right. But, really, most small businesses don't have um, an investment firm or uh, a risk management department that is looking at uh, is projecting out two three years ahead for what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Most small businesses weren't purchasing medical supplies and putting up plexiglass until they were ordered to do it. True, right? They they, they just they don't have uh, that built in in most cases, and there are ways to make it so they can have it built in. Um, but it's it's there's very 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 few people in in in, in my industry that are willing to. Uh, put up with the cost of sale, frankly, to uh, deal with small to medium business. Most of them just go straight for the banks, and uh, as in their words, don't even waste their time. Yeah, and could so it be? Just,
0: yeah. Sorry, Alex. Could it be that in the case of some small businesses, there's a reluctance to confront the reality that things could go wrong? So let's just not go there and plan for it. You've, I'm sure, encountered that before.
1: Uh, yeah, there's 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 quite a few different reasons why people don't tend to prepare. There was actually a really interesting book um, that summarized this that came out that one of the, uh, I think one of the directors of FEMA in the United States came out with called um, The Ostrich Paradox. Uh goes over the main reasons why, I, and it's the same psychology of what happens with, with many people in small business, the reasons why people don't prepare, um, and the irony that uh, people tend to bury their heads in the sand when it comes to hurricanes, tornadoes, pandemics and the like, but mm-hmm. ostriches actually don't tend to bury their heads in the sand. Anyways. But, uh, yeah, no, there's, there's, there's plenty of reasons why people don't tend to prepare. Um, and, uh, frankly, it's human nature in, in many ways It's to, to not want to prepare. We tend to overestimate positive risk and underestimate negative risk and tend to think short-term, not long-term. And, frankly, people who don't have the financial freedom to think long-term, uh, who are too worried about uh, making it to next week, aren't in a good mindset to think about making it to next year. Mm-hmm. So well, there's, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of parts to that.
0: It's indeed, and Alex, I, I appreciate your taking a moment or two to just give us a little background about yourself and your company and the sort of work you're involved in, because it really does help, I think, the listener this morning to appreciate a little bit more about the mindset behind this piece that you wrote in the the Sun newspaper group a few days ago. And I'm reminding our listeners again, the piece was entitled, Deny health care to the unvaccinated. Don't go there. And the, the subheader is a core concept of medical ethics in Canada is everyone will be treated regardless of who they are or what they did or didn't do to end up in hospital. And you go on to talk about not treating those who are unvaccinated by choice would fundamentally change a core concept of medical ethics in Canada. And that is the universality concept. Correct, Alex?
1: um t- technically it would actually be distributive justice um there there's four major medical uh, ethics principles that are generally agreed upon in uh in, in western universal health care uh medicine and technically it would be distributive justice but yeah basically that, that, that idea of the universality of it, yeah.
0: I suppose the fact that it, you had to write this in the first place must have been a little uh, uh, uncomfortable for you because this would be, I, I'm sure, by way of responding to uh, uh, what's a lot of the buzz that's going on right now that we're we're reaching a point in terms of dealing with COVID-19 and the ability to head off at the pass a lot of these surges that are now taking us out of the knees Uh, and and so people are being irresponsible Uh, in many cases they're being what are as viewed as antisocial and all sorts of negative adjectives to to describe people who remain unvaccinated to this moment but to deny them health care is also or has been part of the conversation and that must have triggered something in your mind when you heard someone say that for the first
1: time Uh, no i've been hearing that for years uh that's that's not actually anything really new. Okay. Um the uh and the reality is to work in disaster risk reduction, disaster management or emergency management, you have to have pretty thick skin. Um so no, um and if you've seen some of my other columns, I've wrote wrote written stuff that uh would make this look tame.
2: Okay. So
1: but uh to, to be honest, but the uh the what what I started seeing more and more which kind of necessitated this. Was I, I started seeing um, entire panels of pundits on, uh, on radio stations and on news programs um, unanimously agree across the political spectrum in doing this, um, with no doctor on the panel. And I haven't and, and doctors are put in what I've, what, what, with ones I've talked to especially, are put in very difficult positions, mm-hmm. where in many cases, um, it's not practical for them to come out with a position on this issue. And frankly, many of them don't want to spend the time coming out on this issue when they think the time would be better spent um, reinforcing the need for people to just, to just get vaccinated. Sure. So um, I, I saw that there was starting to get a groundswell of uh, people trying to um, strengthen the argument to fundamentally change Canadian healthcare, And I thought it might be necessary to have them really look at what they're talking about. And this actually isn't to say that we shouldn't do this. There is an argument that you can make where you might want to do this. It's just understanding the consequences and realizing that you might need the majority of Canadians to agree with it if you're going to change the healthcare system.
0: Well, and and here's another quote, a very quick quote from the piece that you wrote, Alex. A new ethic would now override this. Those who do not sufficiently participate in their own health promotion and disease prevention are not entitled to medical care. And that, of course, with referencing to the vaccine, would make perhaps some sense to some. But then you go on to point out that this is not the only possible medical condition or situation we're talking about. Expand on that one for us, please.
1: Yeah, so there's there are two main arguments that we hear and actually before I do that I want I want to put something into context here uh, because this piece is written with a very specific context in mind and I got a lot of I got a lot of feedback on this on this one um, and um, one thing I just want to mention um, some of the people in healthcare that are actually putting this forward are in the position where they have patients uh, who they've known for a very long time, uh, late-stage cancer, for example, mm-hmm. who are having surgeries canceled because of uh, people taking ICU beds uh, due to respiratory uh, distress because right. of the COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and in essence, what is happening in some cases is even though these surgeries are elective, they're the types of surgeries where if they are canceled, it is likely that the cancer will progress to a point where the, perp- where the person Will hit a stage where there 's essentially nothing they can do, mm-hmm. so patients that they 've known for a long time that are on the cusp of potentially being cured are now being put into a situation where they think they 're going to be stuck on palliative care and they 're essentially going to die right. that's now when you have someone who works in healthcare who has a patient've they've, um, they've, they 've they've built rapport with that they respect where the patient has done everything that they 've asked of them, and that person is essentially traded in terms of life mm-hmm. in terms of life. For someone who is um, openly belligerent, which isn't everyone who's um, who's 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 not fully vaccinated, it's uh, frankly the minority of people who are not fully vaccinated. Most people are just uh, just have questions. We can get into that later. But um, but when you, when that's the example, when they see it over and over and over again, it's not a surprise that healthcare workers, in in, in some cases, are. Um, um, Feeling Making strongly about that. And, and, and we're yeah.
0: seeing that particularly these days, this week, Alex, in Alberta. And we'll talk more about triaging. Uh, and it's going on in the hallways in Edmonton and Calgary as we speak. Where Alex Vesna is with us from Mississauga, Ontario. Mr. Vesna is the CEO of a company called Prepared Canada Corporation and wrote a piece uh, recently in the Sun newspaper uh, op ed columns entitled Deny Healthcare to the Unvaccinated. Don't go there. And Alex is been talking about why we shouldn't go there and talking about among other things and Alex this uh, this weekend in alberta we're seeing a hallway triage going on where doctors are uh, regrettably uh, going through the the hard decision-making process of who's going to receive care and attention and who's going to have to be set aside simply because they're overwhelmed their hospital system is completely overwhelmed by the unvaccinated and of course your deals with the complaints of many in the country who are saying, listen, these people are completely responsible for not only their own uh, unwellness, but also they're putting the rest of the population at risk. And and, and discussions have taken place about, well, denying these people health care. And you just say, flat out, don't. Go there. We have a universal system in Canada, and it needs to stay that way. And then, Alex, you talk about uh, those who are. Uh, let's let's. If you don't mind, use a couple of the examples you did from the column uh, with respect to, uh, for example, people. The number one killer in Canada every year is is uh, heart disease. So anyone who doesn't take really good care of their personal health and puts their heart at risk should somehow or another also be a candidate for denial of health care. And you go on and on
1: yeah so there's uh there's two main arguments that are used uh when 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 calling for the denial of health care for the unvaccinated the first is that essentially they don't do enough to protect themselves and it's their fault that they're there yep and the second argument is that they're a threat to public safety Mm -hmm. Have completely different responses um so we'll, we'll go one at a time The first argument uh, that says that they're a threat to themselves is actually a a, a medical health insurance argument. So Canada doesn't actually have universal health care. We have universal health insurance. And not a lot of people really realize this. um, And there's some implications there. But the universal part of our health insurance is that you don't pay an increased or decreased premium based on... uh, what you did to get there, Mm -hmm. unlike uh, if you have private medical care, where you may pay more or less based on comorbidities or pre-existing conditions. Correct. So um, we equally distribute our risk in our health insurance. By saying that the unvaccinated should be denied care, you are fundamentally changing the system to one where there are consequences for your disease prevention and health promotion actions. Mm-hmm. Um, that opens the window to us having something similar to the American healthcare system in many ways, but done through uh, a, a, a public system. Uh, most doctors know this. Um, uh, frankly, um, the, the idea of distributive justice and um, treating whoever's there, uh, whoever comes in regardless of belief, is already pretty well known. Uh, and and pretty well understood and respected, so Mm -hmm. that's not much of an issue. But it's the the, the argument of, well, it's their fault they're there. Um, Now, in addition to that, uh, there are other examples that are given that aren't in the column that I'd actually like to provide. One is smoking, Um, the argument that people who smoke are not entitled to treatment for COPD, chronic Mm -hmm. obstructive pulmonary disorder, which is usually in the top five causes of death. Uh, there's also the argument that people are, who are involved in extreme sports are not entitled to um, trauma care when, they, when it's their fault they were on a half-pipe with a skateboard. It's right. their fault they, they broke their neck. Mm-hmm. There's tons of examples. And frankly, um, I can almost guarantee you that someone who is a professional daredevil is riskier than someone who is unvaccinated. So there is, there is that argument. That's argument one. Okay. Uh, would you like me to just keep going into argument oh, two? Oh,
0: sure, if you would. Yeah, go right ahead. Gun. Could we, uh, in, in the interest of time, let's get them both out there on the table.
1: Yeah, and then back to that, there's one final one that I want to tell you when uh, when we're close to the end. Okay. okay. Argument two. Argument two is that they're a threat to public safety. Now, here's the problem. In Canada, we haven't actually made it criminal uh, to not be unvaccinated. And usually the way in, in, in a Western country that we say that someone is a threat to public safety is by assigning a fine or a consequence. So... A speeding ticket, and this is the example that's used, used in the column, right. is fundamentally a financial penalty that's given to someone who exceeds a public set safety limit. So, if you are a threat to public safety in the action of exceeding a speeding limit, you're given a fine. Uh, similarly, if you uh, are a serial killer, you are given a prison sentence, subject to you, you know judicial oversight, etc. So fundamentally, threats to public safety are identified and addressed in Canada through the the judicial system, and it is not illegal to be unvaccinated. Further, it's not even mandatory to be vaccinated. So removing or denying someone a right from something that isn't even mandatory um, is, I'm hesitant about saying this, but in the context of the situation goes beyond um, unwise, it's asinine. The, and I know that's about to be clipped but no no if like, 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 we're like, live like, it's okay I got you So like the the like it's not mandatory it, it, we the society has not deemed that it's a public safety risk. It may be a public safety risk, but we need to agree it is before we can do anything close to this.
0: And we're more, that consensus is being formed as we speak, Alex, and in fairness, because you're quite right. It is not mandated yet. Uh, we're looking at federal civil servants. We're looking here in British Columbia, for example, at those who deliver health care being mandated to be vaccinated. The nurses union uh, just really have their backs up this weekend uh, over that. And uh, so it's not yet resolved. Let's leave but it here. there. But
1: here's the difference, though. We're talking about removing a fundamental right, not restricting a privilege. Mm-hmm. You can restrict privileges all the time for public health, for public safety. That's not a problem. You could make an argument to deny driver's licenses for anyone who's unvaccinated. It would be pretty tough to make. But you could make it because it's a privilege, not a right. Right. Um, you could. It's easier to make the argument to forcibly hold people down and inoculate them than it is to restrict health care. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's what that's what was done for smallpox, the first vaccine.
0: So, Alex, what sort of, uh, of, of appetite uh, in the in the general population do you think this notion of uh, punishment for the unvaccinated with respect to denial of health care? What percentage of the population do you think that really represents? I'm thinking pretty small myself.
1: Yeah, pretty small. And the reality is as more of these uh, news stories come out like the one that you're probably going to bring up about the person denied health care uh, two or three days ago in the Alberta clinic, which mm-hmm. I assume is the one you're going to bring up. Um, when more cases like that come up where you have someone who uh, wanted to be vaccinated, um, maybe, but they were just waiting for doctor's advice, right. when stuff like that comes up, it, 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 this is going to be less popular. Um, there are actually three reasons that I think are legitimate to not be vaccinated, if you'd like me to go there. Sure, okay. So, reason number one, you have a legitimate medical exemption. Right.
0: Everyone understands that one.
1: Yeah. Reason number two, um, you are unable to contact your doctor and you're waiting to talk to your doctor to find out if you have a legitimate medical medical exemption. Okay. So, you, you trust your doctor, but for whatever reason, you've been unable to contact them. Um, reason number three, uh, for whatever reason, you're in a circumstance where you don't have a doctor and you're looking for a doctor and you really want to talk to a doctor, but you can't find a doctor. Okay. Those are my three reasons. I don't. I don't really uh, attribute. Um, uh, when you look at this from a public safety perspective, from a personal, from a personal um, health perspective, uh, you can choose not to get vaccinated. That's perfectly mm-hmm. reasonable. From public safety, public safety can override pretty much any right. Um, when it gets right down to it, um, it's it's it's. You'd be most people would be surprised just what can be done in the name of public safety, and this ju- this isn't just restricted to health. And this is something my industry runs into all the time. You'd be very surprised what can actually be done in the name of public safety when you start seeing thousands of people drop dead, stuff starts getting justified really fast.
0: Yeah, indeed it does, and that's why this conversation is important to have, because even though it may only represent a fringe number of people, the fact that it's going on as widely as it is, is of concern, don't you think, Alex?
1: Um. Yes, I think the bigger concern is, uh, here, here's the, and here's another part of the article that I think is, is important to reference. It's the job of medical health professionals to treat people after they don't listen to their advice and belligerently come in, uh, save their life, and have them walk away, not listen again, and be repeat frequent flyers. Yeah. That's their job. It sucks. It's not, a good, it's not, it's not great, but that's their job. If, they, if medical health professionals don't like it, they probably shouldn't work in the Canadian health profession. Now, if that is true, and it turns out we don't have enough, enough health professionals left after that for the health uh, system to survive, we have a pretty big problem. Mm. So I'm really concerned about long-term, the longevity of the Canadian healthcare system, and frankly, if it's even viable anymore.
0: I'm Sterling Fox, delighted to welcome back to the program, Kirk LaPointe. Mr. LaPointe is publisher and editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver and vice president editorial of Glacier Media, and also a colleague of mine from previous days on, as they say, another network. Kirk, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Good to talk to you. Well, it's good to have you back with us, Kirk, and a pleasure uh, to have you indeed, because uh, as we discussed a few weeks ago when you made your first appearance with us pre-election, you graciously agreed to come back and do a post-mortem. And so it's that point that we've reached. Uh, Let's get your impressions. First of all, I've read some stuff that you've written about it, but on the radio, your impressions of the election outcome.
2: Well, I think everybody kind of typifies this as a colossal waste of money, Um, and it really kind of just, it was like a bit of a time warp. We kind of went back six weeks in time and and, uh, reset the House of Commons with pretty well everybody back in place. Mm -hmm. Um, There was not a lot accomplished in all of this. Uh, I think for Justin Trudeau, he survived with a skin on this one um, on the assumption that he was going to be able to push himself through to a majority, and that seems like an eon ago now. He nearly... Lost his entire job and all that because of the this, the early surge of Aaron O'Toole, um, who had been really not terribly well known to anybody. True, and uh, and I think he he kind of exceeded expectations in the early going and made it very difficult for Justin Trudeau to retain. Uh, certainly, the, the majority was gone in the first week or so, and then it was a matter in the last couple of weeks where um, where he was able to salvage his government. And uh, there still are, I think, a lot of good questions on what the future for him is like and what the future of course of, Aaron O'Toole is like.
0: Well, it's indeed, it's a great point that you make too about uh, Aaron O'Toole uh, making such uh, making such great gains early in the campaign. And I suspect it was simply because the bar was set so incredibly low. Who is this guy? Nobody knows. And it turns out he was kind of on point for his messaging, um, uh, youngish, athletic, um, appealing visually, etc. So it's not at all surprising that in those early days, particularly, a lot of people went, oh, look at this guy. He's, he's actually Actually okay and that was it's not it's not a huge uh, mountain to climb kirk but nonetheless a lot of people responded very positively especially early on
2: you know when you set your expectations low uh, you can you can exceed them um and in, in this case here with Arnold o'toole i mean he he had spent the last year as a, as a leader doing a lot of things and when you say he's youngish i mean what people never were, we're aware of. I think at a lot of times is that he was actually younger than Justin Trudeau. True. he uh, He lost about thirty five pounds over the last year. He took up running uh, much more seriously, and uh, and very clearly, he wanted to position himself as somebody who wasn't really, um, uh, you know, running his dad's party, as, as he used to say. His struggle, though, was just that uh, he, the Conservatives cast a pretty big tent, and they they need to find ways to bring along people uh, harder to the right of center uh, as they move themselves into the center. And that was really a struggle for him. You could tell um, it didn't help, that, he, you know, he couldn't uh, persuade his candidates to all be vaccinated. And so he left that door open for people to complain about it. And, and that was the thing, you know, with with Justin Trudeau, I think he was running on the basis of the way he'd handled the pandemic. Definitely. And, yeah and uh but but in the early going um you know Canadians didn't much care about that but as the campaign wore on and as it became clearer that uh that you know in some cases uh mandates for workers uh mandates for your own candidates mm-hmm. were becoming a bit of an issue the, the wedge issue did and then uh, become the pandemic and and for Aaron O'Toole, he found himself without uh, you know, without as much of a uh, ammunition, if you want to call it that, in order to persuade Canadians that he was going to be serious-minded about how the pandemic would have been held under him and how it would be held under him going forward.
0: Yeah, and, and by that time, too, Kirk, to be fair, he was also on the ropes. And here's the part that just completely, absolutely, utterly baffles me, because you and I both know, on day one of the election campaign, the Liberal War Room attack machine had already planned, as they do every federal election campaign, to go after the Tories on the big three, abortion, health care, and guns. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Mr., Mr. Uh, O'Toole was simply un- unprepared, completely unprepared to be attacked, as always, on all three fronts with the same old argument, Kirk. They don't even bother freshening the argument. They just drag out the same old stuff. And he was... He was Buried on guns, he looked weak on the vaccination thing because by that time he had vacillated on guns. The health care issue was already starting to cross him up. And uh, the only thing he might have managed to deal with was abortion until the liberals campaign advertising team decided to go after him on that. So, again, with the big three you knew was coming from the first second this was called, he didn't do well at all. And I'm afraid that's, the, that, that's, that's on him.
2: It's on him. I think the most serious one, the one that I think gave people real cause for concern about what kind of a leader he would be, was around the gun issue because, because in fact, you know, he had to. First of all, he he, he didn't seem aware of what the platform said in his own book. Right. Secondly, then he then he kind of flip flopped on it, um, kind of changed course, which you know. You, the The print was barely dry on this book, and he was suddenly you know, rewriting it and that was that was really the issue i think where where you plant that uncertainty as opposed to saying no, this is our position, this is why we argue it, this is how it's still a very uh, respectable, intelligent position on on gun control in this country instead he he just had to go and borrow the liberals platform mm-hmm. and and again you know that's just not the sign of somebody um it's a rookie error uh, i mean sterling these these types of things do happen sure but because there were two or three of them along the way it just it stopped his momentum and it gave Justin Trudeau you know all of the impetus he needed to get back into it, the game and then start to pull away and had had the campaign extended another two or three weeks it was very possible that Justin Trudeau would have gotten his majority uh, that he wanted having said that i i still think he's been a weakened leader by this whole thing, because the one thing that Justin Trudeau did this time that he never did in the past is he began to vilify some Canadians. Right. He began to run run against some Canadians and not just those that were not uh, accepting the vaccination for, for COVID, but he began to run against certain groups. And when you start to, to essentially do a little divisive work like that, the negatives will start to pile up on you. You will become a lot less likable. And that's why I think Justin Trudeau's own future is in some jeopardy here.
0: It's interesting Um, that with that uh, that strategy of divisive attacking individual groups and so on, uh, it, it, it did produce a backlash that we saw in terms of angry protesters and people throwing rocks and all the rest of that, that ultimately, I think actually benefited Mr. Trudeau uh, because he got some sympathy from those angry people who were really, yeah. am, really mad at him, et cetera. And if you were a fan uh, and saw these people yelling and holding their signs up and screaming obscenities and so on, oh, well, the poor guy. So he actually, it it may have actually come around to help him.
2: It can. Uh, but what I would also say is that it wasn't simply the protests that were, were mounting against him all of all of this. And, and, that's where Justin Trudeau uh, can get carried away with himself at times. Is he can appear to have a little bit of sanctimony. Um, he can he can come off as a little bit arrogant in these kinds of things. He can almost joke with people about what their positions are if they're in opposition to him, and that grates people. It makes them feel like he's you know he's, he's kind of above them, and and you know in, in any station in life where Justin Trudeau has done that, it's cost him. And I think in this case here, it has cost him. And that's why I think that, you know, if he, if he does plan out here a two or three or four year uh, minority government, as opposed to going back in 18 months to two years, uh, then, then I think he's going to find that these negatives have piled up in such a way that he will be a very tired brand by, you know, by 2025 or, and, and find it very difficult. Uh, to run yet again.
0: Then here's a piece from a column recent and recently written by our guest Justin Trudeau, Erin O'Toole and Jagmeet Singh for differing reasons should walk or be pushed out of a job before they would again seek the big job. The election gave each leader a chance to ignite the country and they couldn't. In each case, any prospect of moving that needle by 2025 is either improbable or impeded. This all under the headline "Canada in Need of a Total Federal Political Leadership Makeover," written by Kirk Lapointe, publisher and editor in chief of Business in Vancouver and vice president editorial of Glacier Media. Kirk, let's uh, let's take your point and let's go through those three individuals and uh, go through the reasons you cite as uh, being uh, well important. To uh, point out uh, by way of replacing them.
2: Well, uh, the easiest one is Jagmeet Singh because he's had a couple of whirls at this now, and um, if he's, if you can be really honest about it, uh, he, he has half the MPs that he he inherited, um, and there's no real growth potential here now. What's apparent is that many of the things that the NDP uh, have, have been successful in generating as policy and and advocating for the country have been usurped by the liberals right and and as a result um there's not nearly the the, the distinctive nature of the ndp that there was um and i think the other problem uh, and it's uh, frankly i, I admire uh, somebody who takes a principled stand on something like some of the, the quebec laws um uh, around a religious wear and and but uh, but for Mr. Singh, this is actually now a liability for him and the party. And they're not going to grow in Quebec, where these two bills are uh, extremely popular. Still, right. mm-hmm. And uh, and where he, he doesn't really have any uh, upside potential there. They elected one MP this time. But really, they need to elect uh, 15 or so if they're going to be a serious uh, contender out there. So the growth potential is really not there for him any longer, Sterling. And the party will have to probably turn to somebody else, I would imagine, before terribly long, uh, in order to to advance the NDP and rejuvenate it. I think Mister. Singh, you know, he was given up for dead pretty well uh, two two plus years ago when uh, there was a last election, um, and he really only survived because of the ability of the NDP to prop up a Liberal minority, and right. that's going to be his role this time. He'll likely ask for a lot more. He'll he'll ask the Liberals to dig deep down, and curiously, you could almost see the seeds of the next election being there where the NDP actually kind of undoes this government and uh, and where uh, the liberals feel like they have to seek a new mandate because largely you know they're being pressed to do some things that even are uncomfortable for them.
0: Okay, so we talked about uh, Jagmeet Singh, and we've mentioned Aaron O'Toole somewhat, but what would you cite, Kirk, as being the most specific reason the Conservative Party needs to move past Mr. O'Toole? For me, it's uh, the Conservative Party simply did not present itself as a Conservative option. They were liberals with different colored ties.
2: Yeah, that's uh, that's a big part of it, and it's obvious that Mr. O'Toole didn't fully prepare his party for what it was going to have to deal with in order to do that. And as a result, of course, the, you know, the age old conservative civil war has started all over again. And you could see that in the aftermath of the election, um, his, you know, his team was trying to get people to come out and support him, be very clear about it. People like Mike Harris in Ontario and other places uh, in order to make sure that this was not going to be an onslaught, but Mr. O'Toole is going to face automatically a leadership review at the next convention, right? And and I've never seen anybody get through a leadership convention, uh, convention review in good shape. That even if you win it, you kind of lose it. Uh, the idea that you even don't have something like a unanimity uh, around you, as uh, you know, you, he will have some upset caucus members. Um, he will have certainly some upset MPs who didn't win. Uh, their writings another time mm-hmm. and he's going to have a lot of candidates that are just wondering like, what, what is it that I've really signed on here for? Um, I, I actually think that, you know, again, uh, I, I don't think it was a bad uh, move on his part to try to basically seem to be a, uh, uh, you know, a, a safe alternative to Justin Trudeau in this, but I think you only get one shot at this mm-hmm. uh, with a party that is as vast as the conservatives uh, on the center and on the right. You you. You can't give them another place to vote, and of course, in this case here, Mr. O'Toole gave them the People's Party of Canada as a place to park their votes for an election. But but these people will be back, and they'll be after after him. And I and in as much as he may be a very presentable uh, politician who has some very good ideas for the country, I think it's the internal stuff that's going to take him out, not so much the external factors.
0: Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting for that uh, wonderful Leslie Lewis to come forward. She was such a, 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 bla- a blast of, of fresh air during that uh, leadership campaign that saw Mr. O'Toole get elected. I would like to hear a lot more from uh, Leslie Lewis, a real conservative, by the way. Uh, how, about, yeah. how about Mr. Trudeau in terms of lasting through to the next election, whether it's 18 months or four years from now?
2: You know, the Liberal Party put Justin Trudeau up as a leader not so much on the basis of his overall vision for the country because I think that, that vision was framed by a lot of other people around him but for his electability for his image for the, for the you know the signals that he was able to send to the populace about you know about being upbeat about having optimism about being you know this person who is going to look after all kinds of things and I think that it's just worn thin I think the brand is now quite tired mm-hmm. um, I think people, are getting quite cynical uh, about some of uh, some of the gestures, and uh, and I think it just becomes something where when you take a look at the next election, he will have been leader for ten years. That's an eternity in politics. True, and I and I don't think that uh, that you know Canadians are quite as accepting of some of that front stage behavior of, of Justin Trudeau any longer. I think they see through it. They see in this case here that it's so calculated to try to opportunistically take advantage of a pandemic and get a majority out of all of this. Um, And I think that 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 issue lingered a lot more than the liberals thought it would. I think if he goes back next time, unless, unless he waits it all out, goes through the full four years, has a couple of of opponents who are really not all that strong. I I can't see him being the strong person to lead the country uh, through the next election. I think that the liberals will say, you know, it's, it, time is up for you. There are other people in the wings. Let's make our change.
0: Interesting stuff. Now, uh, final question to you, Mr. LaPointe. And again, it's crystal ball time. And I know yours is as fallible as mine. But I'm curious because as, yeah. as, typically it is well-known. And uh, a, m- a metric is available to to, uh, to check. A typical Canadian minority government lasts 18 to 24 months. What sort of lifespan do you give this new one?
2: Um, uh, well, I think it's all dependent on on uh, the leadership. I think that in this case here, it, it's less about the policy. I don't think there's any policy tripwire coming soon mm-hmm. in a minority government. I think the, the NDP will encourage the Liberals to spend, and right now the Liberals are quite prepared to spend, um, and they've got still some things that are uh, that are on the shelf that will come off it in, in the next two three years. No, I, I think I think the the only thing that will really do it will be if. The party, in this case here, the Liberals decide that uh, you know there's time for a change. If Justin Trudeau determines that maybe you know this is it, I've I've uh, done this, I've had three elections, I've won all three, um, uh, you know it's time to move on. That I think would prompt it. Um, I don't see any policy thing that's going to really do that. Mm. And uh, and what's more, um, I think it's going to be hazardous for anybody to to run in the next couple of years. You know, we have a pandemic that's still going to have economic lingering probably some health lingering uh, over the next couple of years, Um, you know, it'll be very fresh. It would be wiser, I think, for any party to try to put as much distance between, you know, the the conclusion of the pandemic, Uh, you know, whenever that happens, maybe another year, year and a half from now, put some distance between that and, uh, and an election
0: and um, on behalf to... of the voters of the nation i, I a resounding here here on that one kirk lapointe i'm fresh out of time and always grateful for yours thank you for honoring your commitment to come back and do this <laughs> with us it was great fun and good to have you this morning
2: always a pleasure, Sterling.
0: Kirk LaPointe from Business in Vancouver. See, this column popped up in front of us the other day from the Toronto Sun, and we said, well, let's find the people who wrote it. The title of the column, Canada is Slipping in Terms of Economic Freedom. It was written by Niels Veldhaus and Fred McMahon from the Fraser Institute, and Fred McMahon joins us now from Toronto. Mr. McMahon, Fred, good morning, and welcome to our show, sir.
3: Thank you for the invite.
0: Well, it's great to have you with us. What do you mean, first of all, if we're going to grab onto this idea of slipping, what do you mean by economic freedom? Uh, Give us a a point of reference here, please, Fred.
3: Economic freedom is simply the ability of individuals and families to make their own economic decisions, uh, free of government interference, and in many nations, free of interference from a crony uh, elite, you know government taxes too much of your money, it reduces your economic freedom. If there isn't no a rule of law that protects everyone's freedom equally, uh, you lose economic freedom, sound money. You don't need too many regulations. You know, you need sensible regulation rather than over-regulation. Right. You can make your own decision, and you should be able to trade with the world just like you can trade with anybody in Canada.
0: Okay. Now, I'm quoting from the article that you and Nils wrote. Canada, after decades as one of the top 10 economically freest places on earth, has fallen into the teens for two years running, according to the Economic Freedom of the World report, raising concerns about a long-term trend away from freedom. So what is it that's caused us to drop out of the top 10 down into the teens? What what moves have we made recently? And I guess more importantly, Fred, how recently have these moves been? Been made
3: it's basically over the last five six years and it's largely in size of government you know if government taxes too much of your money it uh, reduces your property right if it spends too much it reduces space for free exchange it's no surprise to canadians that our government has been uh growing and growing quite strongly over the last five or six years
0: Okay. And of course, now we have again the return of a minority government, which doubtless will be propped up again by the NDP, which, uh, to the best of my knowledge, has never yet met a government that's big enough. (laughs) So uh, this trend does not appear to be going away anytime quickly.
3: (laughs) No, by the way, there have been very responsible NDP provincial governments, Saskatchewan under Roy Romanoff. Uh, Uh, stands out, and uh, actually, if you want to fund social programs, uh, you need a vibrant economy, and you can't tax too much away of it, but you are quite right. In the past, minority situations, particularly in the early 70s, with the uh, elder Trudeau led to an expanse of government, uh, because you have to meet every party's wish list, Mm -hmm.
0: So is that part of the byproduct, will you, uh, of of a minority government situation, which now, of course, we're going to repeat uh, again, that inevitably, because of this, the government is likely to grow even more?
3: Well, certainly the experience from the past, at least in the early 1970s, would suggest, yes, less so when Stephen Harper had a minority government So. Uh, as Yogi Berra once said, predictions are hard, particularly about the future. Uh, <laughs> but to, but 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 to me, yes, they're all major parties. All major parties were really talking about boosting spending yes. in uh, the last election. So I don't see where. The pullback will come from.
0: And you talk in the article about, again, in terms of where we are uh, relative to the rest of the world, as recently as 2014, so that's only six or seven years ago, we were number six uh, in, the, in this uh, economic freedom index, and now we're down to 14th uh, over seven years. So uh, this would indicate certainly a trend, and a rather strong
3: trend. Uh, absolutely. Now, the loss in every single year tends to be small. So what you're worried about is not an individual year because data fluctuates, Mm -hmm. but we are seeing a solid and consistent downward trend, nicking away at our economic freedom a little bit year by year.
0: Does it surprise you
3: uh, that the
0: rhetoric... In the current election campaign, or the most recent election campaign, the one we never needed in the first place and mercifully <laughs> is finally over. But does it not surprise you the, the a little amount of time, consideration, and even verbiage given to economic recovery?
3: It is astonishing. Um, you know, if fiscal sense, uh, if fiscal good sense, Uh, was a sub-theme. It was a sub-sub-sub-theme of this election. You're quite right. It very rarely got brought up. And Canada's emerging uh, fiscal crisis, and by the way, I don't mean crisis tomorrow. I mean (sighs) crisis down the road wasn't discussed at all. We're heading to well over uh, 100% of GDP in government debt. That means everybody in Canada owes their salary plus for a whole year to pay off our creditors
0: and what point uh, do we hit that intersection is it far away or are we there already or almost on it well, it sounds rather a frightening place to be headed towards uh, according to the imf we're both there now my okay all right even worse So then uh, in terms of economic freedom, one would have to uh, imagine uh, economic activity generated by the economy to restore – um, the, the kind of ac- activity that je- that moves us forward. And given the lack of discussion about that, I mean, no problem talking about spending and shoveling the money off the back of the truck. That was what the last six weeks was all about. But no talk, really, of economic recovery, save for the conservatives who said something vague, Fred, about balancing the budget Ten years from now
3: that's the only reference to that notion that i even heard you know what the big spenders forget is that the money comes from the private sector the government doesn't produce its own money well our central bank does a little bit of that but Mm -hmm. they're winding down uh it's the private sector that produces the money for medicare for welfare uh programs for our system of justice and if you choke off the private sector, uh, you choke off the source of funding that I suppose left-wing parties uh, want to spend. So it's 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 a self-defeating game. Canada spends more than the average of advanced nations. Uh, of its Canadian government consumes more than the average of advanced nations. All of which all of whom spend a lot. Spends more than the average of advanced nations. So prior to the pandemic, we were at 42% of GDP government spending. That means four out of every dollar spent in Canada comes from the government. Okay. That means four out of every dollar in Canada goes to the government. During the pandemic, and it was 38%, still high, but a lot lower than Canada, 38% the average of advanced countries. Okay. And that includes a lot of big spenders like uh, France. So if you took the sensible countries, Canada would be even higher. Uh, During the pandemic, and by the way, I acknowledge the need for emergency help during the pandemic. Of course. But during the pandemic, we reached 52% of GDP. I'm sure a lot of that was necessary. I'm sure some of it wasn't. But the question is, are we going to get back into some sort of fiscal balance afterwards. And as you've been pointing out, there's no plan for that.
0: Yeah. And and the only other thing that we've heard, of course, there's the reckoning that's going to come with all of this, Fred. Uh, And the only thing that we've heard so far is some indication from the liberals that they're going to increase the corporate tax rate. And so far, that's the only remedy in terms of addressing anything uh, in terms of accumulated debt and plans for going forward that I've heard so far. Now, what have I missed that you have heard?
3: Uh, (laughs) I I wish you had missed something that I could throw into the mix, but you haven't. Uh, And uh, we have to be globally competitive. If you want to create jobs, you have to attract investment. Mm -hmm. And, And if you tell global investors you invest here, we're going to take a big, big chunk of your money, bigger than other nations, they're going to find another place to invest. Sure.
0: It's uh, Sterling Fox with you, joined on the line from Toronto by Fred McMahon, a resident fellow with the Fraser Institute and co-author of a recent piece that we picked up out of the Toronto Sun entitled Canada is Slipping in Terms of Economic Freedom. And uh, we need to talk about taxation, the, the reckoning. And I suspect, Fred, the problem is going to be compounded by even if the politicians were serious, highly unlikely, about actually addressing debt deficit realities and adjusting tax. Rates to immediately begin to, uh, they're a minority government. They need to get reelected again in 18 to 24 more months. They're not going to impose punitive taxation measures and then ask for us to vote for them again, are they?
3: Uh, no, and they shouldn't. Uh, the best way to deal with this is to get our expenditures under control. Uh-huh. I mean, when you're already pre-pandemic at 42 percent of gdp in government spending and moving upwards uh and now with a whole bunch of pledges to accelerate that upward uh climb the secret is not creating more taxes uh to get the deficit under control what more taxes will do and there's a long record of this is they reduce economic activity Mm -hmm. so Sometimes you increase taxes and you actually get less revenues. Sometimes you increase taxes and you do get more revenues, but not as much as you expect because the people you're taxing have less money to be taxed away by government. So the the, 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 the cure is not uh, going to Swedish taxes. The uh, uh, cure is cutting expenditures. And when we and other nations... And there's a long, long record of this. Uh, Trying to solve deficits by by increasing taxes works only up to a point, and we're probably past that point. But what really works, and what actually incredibly sparks growth, is when you reduce spending because you open up space for free exchange for the private sector, and all of a sudden you see a spurt of growth with Cretchen cut spending in Canada. By the way, far more than Margaret Thatcher did in England, Mm -hmm. or Ronald Reagan did in the United States, you know, uh, a lot of people in Canada think uh, Cretchen's a hero. I'm one of them, by the way. And they think that Thatcher and Reagan uh, are, you know, uh, horrible monsters. Cretchen actually cut spending more as a percent of spending more and our economy took off just as Britain's did under uh, Thatcher and the United States did under Reagan. So, no, I don't want them to have the courage to cut ta- to increase taxes. I want them to have the courage to get spending under
0: control. Well, as the uh, Tories did with uh, Mr. Mulroney, the Liberals trotted out uh, Prime Minister Kretzian at the very end of the campaign to remind voters of the old glory days of Liberal management. And uh, so maybe maybe a little bit of that lesson will stick, but I suspect not, because again, they're in a position where they cannot run the show on their own. They need support and they're going to get all the support they want from the NDP as long as they guarantee to spend 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 like there's no tomorrow
3: well you know I I know you're on the west coast I'm from Atlantic Canada the early 70s Trudeau minority government destroyed Atlantic Canada economically for decades. It's only beginning to recover now because Mm. to buy Atlantic Canadian votes, to give him a majority after the minority government, Trudeau pushed billions and billions of dollars. We went from more or less a private sector economy like every other part of Canada to an economy that was dominated uh, by the government. Uh, We created an unemployment insurance system that rewarded people from not working, Mm -hmm. we suddenly fell away from about average with the rest of Canada in private sector investments to about 40 percent less. Our unemployment rate, which had been uh, sinking to the Canadian average, became four percentage points higher. It was an absolute disaster for Atlantic Canada. And what you've got to hope is that uh, this government doesn't visit that disaster on all of Canada.
0: And in terms of national programs and the sorts of things, again, like we're talking with child care. Now the NDP is pushing dental care and so pharmacare and so on. That's the kind of spending you're talking about, right?
3: Yeah. Um, you know, some of this makes good intuitive sense, but you need to do it within an overall fiscal framework. So if you say you want to do something like pharmacare, you have to find some other place to cut, right. to to hold back, to say, hey, this spending isn't that important. Uh, so I'm not going to make a specific comment on individual programs because some are good, some are bad. Sure. But I'm going to say it has to be done within uh, a sensible fiscal envelope. And uh, it's not that the envelope is now bursting at the seams, it's bursted.
0: Right. Uh, Fred, only a couple of minutes here, perhaps an unfairly short amount of time to ask you this question, but I think it needs to be asked anyway. In terms of economic recovery, one of the big parts of an economic recovery for any country is private sector investment. The current regime running the show in Canada has gone out of its way to discourage private sector investment in just about every sector of the economy. They're hyper regulated types. Um, What do you see in the next 18 to 24 months uh, in terms of interest in investment in Canada?
3: Uh, I think it's going to be difficult, particularly with what's happened to uh, um, uh, our natural resources uh, sector. Uh, uh, um, And look, I'm actually a believer in global warming. I believe that we have to get Uh, our carbon emissions under control. Sure. But if you cut off Canada as a supplier of energy, who starts supplying uh, energy? Coal mines in China? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Thuggish regimes in Iran and uh, Russia? Uh, The best place in the world to produce energy from both a democratic and an environmental point of view is Canada, Canada. because we do better than all these other thuggish nations in controlling uh, carbon emissions. So if you want to deal with with climate change, the solution is not to kneecap Canada's energy sector, but to recognize the role it plays in producing energy for the economy and producing cleaner energy for the environment. And of
0: course, the energy that we're talking about is not necessarily all petro sector energy. As the evolution continues in the automobile sector, we're going to our mining component here with all of those, all the rocks in the ground that those people need to build electric batteries and other components for electric cars. That's an extension of the energy sector, isn't it?
3: You know, I love the anti-mining activists who fly around the world business class and consult with each other on organically grown cell phones. Um, It's just absurd. We, again, the the optimal level of regulation is not zero. Uh, And there are ways to improve the environmental record of the mining industry, but to simply oppose any hole in the ground regardless is just silly. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, I have to leave it there, Fred. I'm out of time, and I'm very grateful for yours on a Sunday morning, sir. It's great to have you on the program, and I commend this article. Uh, Canada is slipping in terms of economic freedom. It's easy to Google. We picked it up in the Toronto Sun, and you can obviously find it on the Fraser Institute website. Fred McMahon, thanks, sir. We appreciate having you on the show. We must do this again.
3: Thank you. It was my pleasure.
0: I'm Sterling Fox, joined on the line by the big guy at Research Company. Always a pleasure to say good morning and welcome to Mario Conseco.
4: Good morning, Sterling. Great to be here with you. Well,
0: it's good to have you with us, and I know that you have done some re-polling on an unfulfilled campaign promise from a couple of years ago regarding cell phones, and I want to get to that in a couple of minutes because it's still sitting there, still absolutely untouched. But it would be unfair if I didn't give you a chance to just react to the election outcome. You and I haven't spoken since Election Day, and if anything that's being analyzed probably to death already mario and i'd appreciate your comments on it though is the obvious urban rural divide in the outcome of the election you and i talked about it before voting day and sure enough it came out pretty much the way it was predicted to come out
4: it did what we saw was uh, the return of the liberal party really dominating in most of the urban areas. Uh, We look at all of the districts in Toronto and they're all red. Uh, They did very well in places in Vancouver where they needed to hold on to their seats, Mm -hmm. uh, not just in the city, but in Metro. And we see the numbers really very similar to what we saw back in 2019, uh, the Conservatives dominating in Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And the numbers definitely not being with anybody. You know, there's a little bit of a shift and There's only two parties that got more votes than the last time. Uh, One of them is the NDP, albeit they couldn't climb the charts as much as they were hoping for. Mm -hmm. And the other one is the People's Party. So, It's an election that very few people wanted. And at the end, I think none of the parties got what they sought.
0: And it's interesting, though, but now that the analysis is coming out and it's so obvious, I mean, not that it wasn't before, but the urban-rural split, they're basically saying the party, liberals especially, they need, if they get Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver, uh, the the majority of seats, they certainly got all of Toronto, almost all of Montreal and a significant bite out of Vancouver. That's halfway To a majority government. And so now they're targeting those seat rich urban environments much more so than the rural areas where they they don't do as well to the point where they're almost excluding uh, rurals uh, and just concentrating on seat rich environments where they're going to do well.
4: Well, it's similar in a way to what we see developing in elections uh, in the United States. Uh, You know, there's campaigns that essentially decide that there are certain states where you're not going to send your candidate because you're not going to get the win. Right. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that development here when it comes to the liberals. Uh, There's definitely a situation where the numbers in specific parts of the country are not fantastic. If you're looking at the surveys, uh, including the ones that we conducted here in British Columbia, and you see the Liberals you know, hovering around the 26, 27 percent mark, you're more likely to believe, well, they're not going to do well. Mm-hmm. But if you get that vote in the places where you need to, you get more seats, which is exactly what happened this time around uh, under a different system. Uh, the Liberals would not have won as many seats as they did both in the country and in the province.
0: Indeed. And the People's Party, you mentioned ever so briefly, in a couple of ridings, they were actually the vote splitters, which allowed another party to take out the conservative in a in a riding that typically would have gone conservative.
4: Well, what is fascinating about this party is that there's a lot of people who are new to the political process. Right. We saw a lot of new voters People who were disenchanted with the pandemic and coming out and voting for the People's Party, not in the numbers that would give them seats, uh, but ultimately costing some of those um, seats to the conservatives. So what we saw here is a situation where that protest vote that usually goes conservative or green ended up going to the People's Party. And this is one of the reasons for them to have more than 800 votes. Uh, mil- uh, sorry, eight, 800,000 yeah it's a party that started at 1% and ended up at 5%. So the the real question here is what is going to happen with this party in a couple of years when we no longer have to deal with this pandemic? Will they be able to sustain this momentum? Or is this something that is happening right now because of economic concerns?
0: Well, and of course, and and answering even that, a a greater mystery question from this perspective today is, in the next election, 18 to 24 months from now, likely, uh, where will the Green Party be? Because they live literally vanished this time around.
4: Well, there's a big decision to be made, and I'm not talking about figuring out what to do with the leadership. I think it's ultimately about how you spend the money in order to get elected. We saw the example with Elizabeth May, who ran for the first time in Nova Scotia and ended up losing to Peter McCain. They found a riding that was very environmentally friendly, and they continue to win it. Maybe this is the future for the party, not pretending to run a campaign that is national, but focusing on 5, 10, 15 target seats that they could win – and then campaigning a lot in them. You know, similar to what the liberals are doing in the urban areas.
0: Exactly, or the Bloc Quebecois does in Quebec. Now, let's change gears, Mr. Canseco, because I know this is a particular burr under your saddle. This is an unfulfilled campaign promise from the last election, and it has to do with cell phone rates. Canadians are charged among the highest cell phone rates on the planet. That prop Two years ago, politicians promised to do something about it, if only we voted for them. So we did and they didn't do anything?
4: No. What's really interesting about this is uh, the promise that the Liberal Party made back in 2019, which is to negotiate with the companies to try to talk some sense into having lower rates for Canadians... Was the promise of the new Democratic Party this time around? You know, two years later, the NDP essentially says, well, this is the way we should do it. We should try to talk to the companies, try to negotiate a better deal for Canadians. So the Liberals didn't really talk a lot about this. The Conservatives are more into the side of opening the market mm-hmm. allowing some of the american companies to get in here this is attractive for people who maybe are watching television on the american networks and figure out just how little americans are paying for their cell phone True. services compared to us Yep. now the problem with the conservative promise is that it's going to take four or five maybe six years to implement because it's not that easy to open a market as complicated as telecommunications. so True. What this gives us when we ask Canadians is a lot of cynicism. Seventy percent of British Columbians who are saying my cell phone bill is too expensive. I have traveled. I have seen. I know what people I, who live in other parts of the world are actually paying for their cell phone, And I think we're getting gouged. And there's really not a lot of uh, hope. And for the federal government or the provincial government to try to change this.
0: Well, and, and uh, but there's lots of opportunity then for talk up a good show about changing this, but there really wasn't even a, a great deal of blather about this particular subject during the campaign at
4: all, was there? No, there were a couple of moments when uh, the NDP mentioned what they wanted to do, there was an opportunity. Um, for the conservatives to essentially say we want to open up the market, if you guys are looking at how little Americans are actually paying for this, well, maybe we should allow some of those American companies to come in here. Right. It helps the base because conservatives are all about free trade. They believe it's important to have that type of competition. It's not an issue that is going to win you votes necessarily, but it helps you deal with the base. And the reality here was the NDP was helped by the message of you know we're going to fight for you. And we, if we form the government, we will figure out a way to lower these fees for the Conservatives. This was all about competition. And for the Liberals, it was don't ask us about our promise from two years ago, because we want to talk about the pandemic.
0: And do you think that this is going to uh, have any kind of uh, opportunity for re-examination once the Parliament reconvenes? Or is this simply just going to be tossed aside for another
4: two years? Well, I think it will be tossed aside, on, unfortunately. You know, it's, it's a very complicated issue. Uh, for the liberals, because they don't want to embrace any of the plans that we saw from the other parties. Now, we're heading into a minority situation, and I think the next couple of weeks are going to bring us to a point where Jack Singh is going to meet Justin Trudeau and is going to have a list of five things he wants to do. I don't know if one of them is going to be cell phone charges. Uh, but we know that the Liberals, if they want to sustain the government for at least 18 months, are going to have to say to the NDP, we will implement three of the things that you want. Now, it might be pharmacare, it might be childcare, the way the NDP has designed it, or it actually might be cell phone bills, but we'll have to wait and see.
0: And what do British Columbia? final question, and very quickly, what do British Columbians think, based on your polling, will be the priority?
4: Well, the number one thing right now is housing, and I think this has been consistent uh, throughout the entire campaign. It was an interesting campaign because every region had something different that they wanted to to deal with. Yep. Uh, housing is a key one. And I think what is really striking now is we're within a year of the next municipal election. I think there's going to be a lot of coordination between the federal government and the municipalities because we have a lot of mayors who want to get elected. And one way to get elected is to cut ravens outside buildings. Mm-hmm.
0: Shovel that money off the back of the truck. They know they've seen it done successfully just last week. Mario. Canseco, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you for a, a few moments of your Sunday morning.
4: My pleasure.